Welcome to The Hoop Commitment. I'm your host, Mike Nielsen. Join me every month to get inside the greatest minds in basketball nutrition, training, and leadership to elevate your game and improve the way you eat, train, and lead. Welcome to episode 121. It's officially tourney time. My son Carter plays his first ever state tournament game tonight in the Tacoma Dome. And our Gonzaga teams both head to Vegas next weekend for the WCC tournament. I'm hopeful our GU teams will continue playing all the way through March. But within the next couple days, win or lose, every high school player in the state is going to be done with their season. I remember that feeling so well, finishing the last game on a loss and then chomping at the bit to get started training for next year, but also not really having a plan of what to do. I didn't know, should I take any time off? How many days should I be in the weight room? And what exercises should I do? Do I train for strength or power, agility, vertical, conditioning, quickness, coordination? There are so many different ways to approach the off-season that it's easy to get paralysis by analysis. Or just as bad, try to focus on everything, which means you focus on nothing. And so, I thought this was the perfect time to dedicate an entire episode to creating a year-long basketball training plan. And so, today I brought on one of the world's experts in the field of human performance, Dr. Andy Galpin. You might have heard him on the Joe Rogan Experience or the Tim Ferriss Show, I actually discovered him while listening to his 20-plus hour interview on the Huberman Lab and was blown away with how he combines timeless wisdom with the most up-to-date science. Dr. Andy Galpin has his bachelor's degree in exercise science from Linfield College, a master's degree in human movement science from the University of Memphis, and his PhD in human bioenergetics. He considers himself a scientist, teacher, and coach with his full-time job being a professor at Cal State Fullerton. As a scientist, he's the co-director of the Center for Sports Performance, where he conducts research on anything that's relevant to human performance. He's also the founder and director of the Biochemistry and Molecular Exercise Physiology Laboratory, with over 100 peer-reviewed publications and presentations. As a teacher, he's written countless articles, created an awesome YouTube page, and teaches grad classes in strength and conditioning, program design, muscle physiology, and nutrition at Cal State Fullerton. And as a coach, he's worked with professional athletes for over 15 years that include NBA All-Stars and Hall of Famers in multiple sports. So, with a resume like this, I thought Dr. Galpin would be the perfect person to share the big picture principles of designing a year-long training program while also providing actionable specifics that we can apply starting next week. Here's Dr. Andy Galpin. Dr. Galpin, welcome to the Hoop Commitment Podcast. How you doing? Great, man. Great. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, I feel like we're old friends after listening to your 20-plus hour Huberman Lab interview. How long did it take you to get that thing recorded? couple days. It was amazing that just off the cuff, you talked about training principles, dug into the science and the research. And it seems like every time I listen to you speak, I learn something new. So thank you for everything you do for our field. 
And today what I was hoping we could talk about is creating a year-long training cycle for basketball players. So, you know, I have a 16-year-old son, loves hoops, has a dream of playing here at Gonzaga one day. And I thought it would be fun to use him as our test subject. But before we talk about specifics, what goes into your thought process on creating a year-long training program? Now, actually, I really appreciate you starting with that question. You know, if you've ever heard me say stuff and it'll come up a bunch, I always struggled to give hyper-specific answers to questions because my inclination, having coached so many people, is, dude, I want more context. Because I know my honest answer is, I, I wouldn't just pick this exercise or I wouldn't go this strategy. I, I need to know what is, you know, all these variables are going to come up in my mind. So when I give answers like that, I struggle sometimes to just give really straightforward, clear short answers because I'm like, I, I, I can think of examples in my own career where that wasn't true or we did it differently for that person. So I appreciate you letting me have the opportunity to start with some context first, which is what are the fundamental things, right? So when we're going into a training program in this example for a year, I'm automatically thinking very first step, what is our actual goal? Now that's important because it's different than what the client, in this case, your 16-year-old thinks. So the goal is going to be something like touch the backboard or make the varsity. Like, okay, great. Like none of that matters to me. I'm actually going back to what I call the defender. And so if you can imagine, we'll use a little bit of a basketball analogy here, is you're trying to score and there's somebody defending you and blocking you from that goal. It doesn't matter per se what the goal is. What you need to figure out is what's actually defending you. So is it the fact that there's somebody at the three-point line, once you get past them, there's nobody past there? Great. Or is there somebody standing in the key right in front of it? Like, what is the actual defender? And that is the real key because in this case, figuring out the goal is not particularly complicated. And for a 16-year-old, it doesn't matter per se. And so what, what do I mean when I say defender? In this case, is the defender, he's really underweight. He's really overweight. Defender is he gets hurt a lot. Cardiovascular shape, basketball skill. Is it he's playing basketball too often, right? That he's in AAU and then high school. And then like, what are the defenders? So the very first thing I'm searching for is saying, okay, all right, kid, why aren't you great right now? Even if you are great, like, why aren't you greater? Like, there's always another level, right? What is it? And then you give me that feedback to say, what is the biggest hole in your game? Your conditioning, your speed, your vertical jump, your shot can be technical stuff, right? Like I, I can't remember the plays. Okay, you tell me. And then we're going to work backwards with that singular goal in mind. So I teach an entire graduate level class where the whole point of the class is we design year-long training programs. Like this is literally what we do, right? So in your example, like this is exactly how I teach them. You got to give me one big goal and then I'm going to go figure out your three to seven defenders of those goals, right? So maybe his hamstring flexibility, his leg strength, his defensive capability and some other thing, right? And then now we understand those things and we rank order those. Okay, so the biggest thing we got to do is get you healthy first, right? You're, you're getting knee pain way too often. Okay, great. So what are the cases? And then we create a scale of one to 10. So that's at all those defenders total 10 points, 10 total points among all those defenders. And we allocate, well, how many? Okay, so five is going to go to injury reduction. Three is going to go to leg strength. One is going to go to basketball IQ and whatever left one is going to go to upper body power. Like who, who knows, right? We're, we're ranking all that stuff. Now we've got our framework for the year. And at all points for every individual workout, for every week, 
for every month and for each phase of the year, how, depending on how we're breaking this up into mesocycles and stuff, depending on his schedule, we get all that. I want to know, okay, great. Remember half of the year, 50% is making sure you don't get hurt, fixing, correcting movement patterns, whatever we got to do so that you don't get hurt short and long-term. That's our North Star. That's our Polaris at all times. Like that is our guiding thing. Doesn't mean we're going to literally spend half the year just doing yoga and stretching. We're just trying to figure out, like, remember, what's the big picture? What's the big picture here? What is the real goal? Because we got to get not hurt this year because the reason we're not in shape is because we get hurt so much when we have to take so much time off. Or the reason I am struggling with my shot is because I can't practice enough. Why am I practicing enough? Well, because I keep getting hurt. So that's what I mean. We're going to walk all the way back and figure out what's stopping that whole issue. And then from there, once we've got that down, the very next step, we do a calendar assessment which is we take the whole year and you mark out dates that are non-negotiables, right? Family vacation, in-season games, tournaments, finals weeks, you know, whatever stuff. And you mark them out. We look at those 12 months and go, hey, look, is it best for us to try to make our most progress in muscle gain over December? Well, we got Christmas break. We got the end of the semester. You got this other thing you're going to do. You got a three-day tournament over here. Then you got a two-day sport camp. That'd be silly to try to maximize your muscle growth during a month when you know you've got everything else going on here that's against muscle growth. So then we may come back and say, okay, actually, we need to do that in this phase of the year because that's what's going on. So from there, and I'll, and I'll stop here in a second. I know I'm like question one, I'm fire hosing you here. Once we've got that all orchestrated out, then it becomes actually fairly simple to start chunking down. All right, this in-season phase is going to be however long. This off-season phase is going to have two major focuses or three major focuses, and it needs to be six weeks long or 16 weeks long or whatever the case. But you can actually backfill in based on that 10-point priority system against everything there. Then from there, you just start to fill in some more details later, but that is the fundamental question. So I start with what's our goal? What are all the defenders? How many points out of 10 do each defender get? Then from there, we fill in our schedule that are non-negotiables because life especially for a 16-year-old, life always wins. And then from there, we've got real specific structure and we can go in and start like actually building our, our training programs. If we're using that basketball analogy, a lot of people say, well, work on your weaknesses. If you look at someone's game and they are really strong going to their right hand and their weak hand, they barely can dribble and chew gum at the same time. That would be one thing. How do we fill in that gap? There's another theory that would say, don't worry about your weaknesses as much as be unbelievable at your strength. How would that apply in the strength conditioning or exercise science world? Yeah, that's another really great question. I was actually just in Arizona a few weeks ago with um, a golfer that I work with named John Rom, right? So one of the best golfers in the world. And actually it was, it was him and Michael Phelps, obviously the legendary Michael Phelps. And um, Phelps said, my goal was always to maximize the things I can control. What's that mean? In the case of basketball, and it's funny because basketball was literally the example he said. In basketball, you can control free throws. There's no one ever blocking you. There's never it's the same distance, always. So maximize your free throw shooting percentage, right? Maximize the things that are completely within your control. Uh, that way you at least have those things down and are staples. You know if you need to draw a foul, you're going to be able to shoot 75% for the line. Great. Like, you know, you can go back to that because you know it's controllable. And the things you can't control, like the offense and defense, the pace, and other stuff like that, go back to it. You know, you can control your dribbling. 
like with with your left, if you can't dribble at all, like if it's just going to go off your foot and out of bounds, great. So make sure you have minimal viable. How much you want to put into like, which moves do I like and which, what do I do with it? Fine, but you need to have some basic things that you can control. So the first answer would be that on the skill, on the court stuff, control the things that you have a chance to control the, the most amount possible. In the terms of exercise science, what that means is I work with a lot of different athletes in a lot of different sports, but we see this all the time, specifically in our fighters. So I work with a lot of UFC fighters and we have the same thing, right? So say you're phenomenal at wrestling, but you're terrible at striking or boxing. What do you do? Just make sure you're like the best in the world at the wrestling. That's really a tactics from my side as like the strength conditioning exercise science side is, you know, you tell me what you want to do tactically, and then we'll make sure that the program matches that. And the biggest key is just that last piece. Just make sure what you're actually wanting to get done matches what you're doing in the gym, and then you're going to be fine. And if you made the wrong strategy, you know, entirely up to you, but we want to get that right. So if you're saying, hey, look, I'm getting pushed around too much and I need to put on 15 pounds of muscle. Okay, great. Well, then we can't be out there trying to maximize our conditioning. Like it wouldn't, it's not lining up. Like we're not doing the thing that we said we need to maximize. But also, by the way, if you want to maximize one thing, you have to acknowledge we're probably going to lose some area and somewhere else. We're probably going to lose some steam, right? So we put on that 15 pounds of pure muscle. Well, we better expect we're going to get a little bit slower, maybe. We might expect our shooting skill might go down, our dribbling skill might go down because we put so much of our maximal recoverable volume is what it's called into growing muscle that we didn't make as much progress in our skill or speed because now we have 15 more pounds of mass. Right. Does does that mean training for muscle automatically makes you slower? No, 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 no. But just mechanically, if you put 15 pound backpack on, you're going to go a little slower for a little bit until we can adjust for that. And so what you wouldn't want to do is say, all right, we're going to gain as much muscle as possible prior to the season. And then it's like, whoa, we're going to walk in a season. We're going to feel slow, maybe a little bit out of shape too. And we're not going to feel very skilled. So probably we should put that maybe somewhere else in the year where we're, we're playing, but we're doing our summer league or we're doing something else where it's like, we're willing to go down in skill and conditioning a little bit. Now we don't want to, but like, if that happens, okay. That way, when we get to preseason, we can focus on getting fast, making sure we're super fit and work on that skill thing. Um, but that is honest reality that you're going to play the game of, right? It's like saying, okay, what are my defenders? My defender, my top defender is my is my basketball skill. Awesome. Then we know we can't do stuff in the weight room that drains you so much or takes your time so you can't develop your skill because in the end of the day, if you're the strongest, fittest, fastest guy, but you can't dribble the basketball up and down the court, it doesn't matter right now, right? So if that's the decision you made, that's cool. Just make sure that your program is consistent with those goals. But if you don't have those goals in the first place, then you're just training everything, which is like, this is a classic death cycle, right? Because like everybody definitely wants to get better at everything, but you have to have a goal so that you can have a principle to say, I know at least I'm going to get A and B done. And I hope C and D come along for the ride. But if I try to do all four, I might get nothing. And you mentioned the reducing injury part, which is huge in my book. You know, when recruits come in, that's the first thing I talk to their families about is, I tell them the story about when I first got the job here at Gonzaga, I thought my role was really to get everyone bigger, faster, stronger until someone gets hurt. And then you realize, oh. man, over the course <laughs> of four years, you can improve a lot if you just stay in the game. I give that speech. The hard part, though, is when someone tears an ACL and I'm wondering, how do I reduce this and prevent this? I know there's these risk factors. 
I'm doing everything I know how. And we have a lady tear their ACL and it just rocks my world. It's literally the one thing that could take me out of this profession is just knowing the the pain that someone goes through, especially when it's their second time. So thoughts on injury reduction and specifically ACLs when it comes to women. So I work with a number of female athletes, actually. Um, one of them in this example that I'll give you is a girl named Tatiana Suarez. And so she's currently an undefeated UFC fighter, ranked number two or three or so in the world. I don't know exactly right now, but she's seven, eight, maybe nine and oh in the UFC. So she's up there, right? When I first started working with her, she was coming off of a serious neck injury. And Tatiana was was a wrestler in school. And I think she got a silver medal in world championships as a 17-year-old. Then prior to the Olympics, she broke her neck. And when they were taking the x-ray of her neck, they found she actually had cancer in her neck. So she lost years to that, decided to come back and go right into MMA. So left Olympic wrestling and went to MMA. So she was going on, have a great career, and then she hurt her neck again in one of her UFC fights. So I started working with her after that neck injury. And that probably took us two and a half or three years. No fighting. It took a solid two and a half, almost three years to get her back. She gets back. We get a fight on the books. We're ready to go. She's in training camp. Things are going great. And she tears her ACL, MCL, PCL, meniscus completely like the pieces, sends her back another year and a half. So all told, we went over four years without getting to compete one time. And I say that to say, I had three years. I had three years where I knew she was not going to get to fight. I was number one in terms of, didn't matter if we developed boxing skill, didn't matter if we worked on wrestling or jiu-jitsu, didn't matter with nutrition. Like I, from the SNC side, had primary real estate on her for three years. And she still blew her knee to all living like thing, right? And it was a it was a disastrous knee injury. Um, watching her go from no income for three years, getting ready to finally fight again, and then knowing she's going to be out another year plus again, and still, like when you say heartbreak, when you say like, leave, I get it, man. Like I get it with that one. So, on one hand, I'll say, I don't know, because I had the chance to do it with somebody and I I failed. Like it still lost it. Now, hers was acute trauma, like somebody fell into her knee, a little different than non-contact, but I don't know. Um, We went through a a large process. She's back again. She's came back. Actually, she just released, um, HBO did a giant documentary on her called On the Unbreakable Tatiana Suarez. It just came out last week, like super funny enough. So she's back again in the UFC, came back, won her fight, won a couple fights, and is probably going to fight for title here soon. In terms of training, though, to prevent it, you, you have to just do everything you can do. And then from there, you just have to deal with it when it happens. Cause I, I would, I would probably not be sitting in this chair. I'd be sitting in a giant 70,000 square foot mansion. If I knew how to prevent ACL tears in women, I mean, the data where it is, you're probably aware of a lot of that stuff, but I don't think anyone's really gotten this to figure that thing out yet. So it's, it's a long answer to say, I don't know, man, but there's hope for the future here. And the reason I say that is when you think about like something like a young female college athlete, or high school athlete tearing ACL. There is actually a lot of steam behind that research-wise. So scientists are like working hard on that one. And you remember back in the day when we would think like, well, that's Q angle, right? It's this angle between their hips and their knee and stuff like that. And we still haven't gotten very far in a lot of those areas. But there's actually a new technology called Spurmbach. Now, this is really cool. It's an MRI that you can get done. 
and it's a, it can do a full body MRI, but you can specifically do the lower half. In that, you can come back and you can get a volumetric measurement of each individual muscle throughout your entire body. And with, within that, we can create a 3D model. We can look at actually edema, you can look at scar tissue and all that. And so what you can actually do is you can run this scan on somebody, get a report back, and you can run it in three dimensions. You can look at any individual muscle size itself. Uh, in this particular example, you might be able to see that there's a 15% discrepancy between the vastus lateralis, their outside quadricep muscle, on the right side versus their left side. You might be able to look at something like a gracilis or an adductor or a hamstring, one of the hamstrings muscles, or any number of things. And if you see a massive discrepancy in size, there's not enough data coming yet on it, but you would have to imagine like that's a precursor. Now, muscle size is not telling you anything about function. Right. So there's a, it's definitely a difference between strength and total size, but they're also they are related. And I know this because I thought about this because I know Springbok is has a deal with the entire NBA. So they're doing everybody going into the NBA combine. I don't know if they're doing the WNBA. I think so. But something like that is going to happen. And the real fundamental problem is we don't know enough data in a lot of these questions. But something like when, when Springbok can finally get that and go, hey, look, we scanned every NBA player. We scanned every WNBA player. Then we went and looked back at their history of ACL tears. We were able to see who tore the ACL in the future. We will then be able to draw lines and say, maybe it is all about the VL. And maybe it only matters if the asymmetry is more than 20% or 2%. Or it has nothing to do with the VL and it's all about the semimembranosis. And then, I mean, who knows, right? The problem is we don't know because MRI imaging studies are so expensive and so hard to do in the past. But now that this can be done really easily and you can get every muscle and entire leg done in one MRI, uh, where like scientifically that would take me tens and tens of thousands of dollars. It would be so impossible to do. In fact, you can do this in a, a 20 minute scan. We're going to have better answers is I guess. I, I, so I don't want to leave it on such a negative taste in the mouth. Like I would imagine in the next, you know, two to seven years, we're going to have significantly better information about what's going on for, for injuries and things like that. I love hearing that because I just feel like we need to do better for our athletes. I need to do better for our athletes to be able to keep them on the court with how hard they work all the time and energy. It's just heartbreaking to see someone lose a season. Yeah. Let's get into specifically my son because I thought if we can get some training guidelines from him, there's a lot of high school basketball players out there that are in the same boat. One sport athletes, they're just coming up on the state tournament. They're going to finish the season, and if they're anything like me, they end their season in a loss. There's only one team that gets to win the state championship. And if you end your season on a loss, the next morning you're probably like, I want to get up and I'm going to run five miles today and I'm going to get up a thousand shots. And, you know, you have this burning desire to get better. So talk to me about how much time off should a high school basketball player take roughly? You know, I know that every person is unique. Um, even depending on my son, year to year is probably going to be unique. But what's the value in reflecting, letting the body and the mind, the spirit rest up after a long season? You know, I, I'm a Washington boy as well. So I'm from the same hood up there. I'm just a West Sider, not an East Sider. I remember basketball season would always start before football season ended for us because we were very good in football. So we always played very, very late, right? We were in the playoffs. And so the guys that played football wouldn't start the basketball season on time. But the expectation was like, as soon as football is over, so you lose on a Saturday uh, playoff game, like you were definitely going to be at practice on Monday, like 100%, right? And we're, because it's preseason or early season, 
you're starting off with defensive slide drills and conditioning, like you're, you're going right into it and you'd feel so out of shape so fast, right? Because it's a different type of energy there. I say that to say my, my honest answer is you should take time off. But also I felt fine. I never remember, like, <laughs> I remember feeling like, oh my God, I'm not ready for basketball shape. It's different. But like, I never, you're 14, 15, 16, like 17, 18, you're probably okay to be candid. Where people run into issues is when they're stacking multiple sports at one time. And that is, you know, I'm playing basketball on the school team, but then I'm doing AAU as well. Uh, and I'm also doing tennis or, or you're, like, you're like, okay, great. You're playing two sports at once now and you're not accounting for that. So I would love for people to be able to take a couple of weeks off. Um, none of our professional athletes really come back for at least a week. Sometimes it's two and a half to three you know, but a lot of them, like our fighters, like we usually want like 72 hours. If they want to come back to the gym and hang out, like watch people, they got a friend fighting pretty soon or something like that. That's cool. But I honestly don't even want them to do that because of what you said, like emotionally, mentally, like just get out of the gym, go to the desert for three days, like go, go do, you know, like something different that you can't do in camp. But they don't always listen. So I would like that. The other thing I want to mention at this point is one thing that's really clear you don't want to over-specialize in the sport. The only exceptions are sometimes like gymnastics because you compete and you peak so early in your career. But outside of that, if you look at professional athletes that are actually adults when they're professional athletes, it's really, really clear. Sports specialization is a bad idea. And so if you frame the question of like, hey, when I finish, you know, again, team got eliminated. Next Monday, I started playing my tournament team. And then all I did was play basketball the whole year round. Now you're probably going to run into overuse issues. I think the reason most kids get away with it, like I did, is because you went from football and then you went into something different in basketball. And then we went from basketball and we went into baseball. And then we went, so we're rotating movement patterns and demands and tissue. And we're not just stacking the same thing on top of each other endlessly for years on a row. So my recommendation would be if you can take some time off, great. If not, try to at least be rolling into a different sport. So we start up the season and I've taken my son. He doesn't have any bad knees or ankles. You know, he's just a, he's an average athlete. He's a little taller. He's six, four guard. Ooh. He moves decent, but I think the biggest obstacle for him is size, strength, and power, speed, quickness. You know, he's a good athlete, but if he gets in the lane, people, he's 165 pounds at 6'4", about 0% body fat. He gets pushed yeah. around pretty easily down low. Uh, and then when he's, when he's with the really small guards, he's not quite as quick as them. And so if I was looking at those defenders, I would say definitely strength, balance, his ability to be able to take a hit and then working on those quickness, not just lateral quickness, but vertical quickness, linear quickness, so we get into this off season, he's going to start training. Would you start with the basics of, hey, let's just start with traditional strength hypertrophy. You know, we're really months away from the next time he's going to be competing in a tournament. What would your thoughts yeah. on some of those training goals be? 100%. This is, uh, this is a really, really good example of the way we started the conversation. So when, when I hear something like that, I think, okay, you think the goal is not you, but like, right, the collectively. You think the goal is speed and power and strength and muscle size. That's not what I heard. This is all strength. Because the reason he's slow is because he's too weak, right? The reason he can't react and get back up is because he's too weak. The reason he's getting pushed around is not because of he doesn't have any muscles, because the muscle's not strong enough. 
So this is a great way of going, great, your goal was A, B, and C, and D. My defender, though, is all actually is lack of strength. Your balance is lack of strength. You're not stable. It's your lack of strength. If that muscle is strong, it can absorb the force and react faster. That's probably his bigger issue, right? So he's not going to be able to express his actual speed that he does have until he becomes more stable and can absorb that force better. If he gains some weight, which he will with age, great. But if he was twice as strong, it wouldn't matter if he was any bigger, he wouldn't get pushed around. So my primary goal would be strength. Now, if I'm that far away, I would certainly start. And because a 16-year-old, that you don't need to go to pure maximum strength. I would do like a little bit of a kind of a blend of strength and hypertrophy, and that's going to get him really, really, really strong. You will see that then express as way more power and speed. Doesn't mean you can't do some speed and power stuff. Always, always a good idea. Like always, right? But I would I would do like a either a conjugate or what we'll call a vertical integration, which is sort of like, okay, we're going to do 40% of our workout like strength, maybe in sets of four to seven reps. Okay, not like a pure strength. He doesn't need to be doing you know, one rep maxes and said, not that I'm against it. Like he certainly is fine to do pure strength stuff, but more of a middle range, right? We're not doing necessarily sets of like 12 to 15, right? He doesn't need the muscular endurance sort of the equation. So when you do a set to five, six, seven, you're going to get some a lot of strength. You're going to get some muscle growth there, right? I'll probably do 40% of our workout in that range. And then I might pick a, a finishing series at the end maybe two to four exercises, depending on how the whole like thing is structured, where you do more of a classic hypertrophy. Okay, where we can do uh, a little bit of upper body work or, or isolation, maybe even single joint stuff if he wants a certain area. And you'll hit it with two, maybe three sets of kind of that 10 rep range sort of thing. Get him a good pump in there, get him a little hypertrophy. And then I probably started the session, I skipped this part. So I'll finish 40% strength, probably 40%, maybe 30% hypertrophy. And then 10, 15, whatever running percent is that speed and power. But you'll probably start the session with that. Two, three exercises, maybe some medicine ball stuff, some landing stuff. So it's like eccentric bracing. So step down, land, maybe land and then explode. So not trying to like peak power, but really trying to work on force absorption, right? Landing in the right spot, um, getting to the next position when we get there, but not being too worried about amortization time. Then building ourselves from there. So we finished up those. We're good and warmed up. We do some strength stuff. We do a little hypertrophy at the end. And then we're out of there to the next day. Um, as the season goes on, as you progress, then you just start to change those percentages. So now instead of 40% of the time being on hypertrophy, that goes down to 20. That extra 20% starts going on to 10% more strength, 10% more power. Now that hypertrophy comes down to 15%. Now it's just one or two finishing exercises at the end of the day. And really, we're just, we got more time for acceleration. Right versus, and then we have some time for peak velocity. And we can start getting into the nuances within those sides of the equation as the season progresses. But that's how I would start it off with a little dose of everything every day, little dose of everything every training session. But we're just going to change the percentages as the season goes on. How important is exercise variability? Does it really matter if he's doing bench press every single week, or is it great to add dumbbells and different angles and different planes of motion? Yeah, anytime you're playing the game of specificity versus variability, specificity gets you more results, but gives you less results in different areas. Variation does the opposite, right? So it gives you a lot of results in different areas, but gives you less actual results. And so you, you're playing a little bit of game. If he did nothing but barbell bench press the whole year, that's the best way to get better at barbell bench press. 
No question. Specificity wins. The downside, though, is, again, we're not getting better at different angles and different you know, positions. Okay, great. So how do you balance that? It's a little bit hard because if you do the opposite, which is you go to maximum variability. So every week, this week we're doing dumbbells. Next week we're doing incline. Well, the problem with that is you don't actually get to stress the tissue enough to overload it. And so you end up kind of just going to like a lot of nowhere, which is really, really hard. So you want to play a little bit of a game with that. General thing I would recommend would be something like probably say somewhat consistent for four to six weeks with your exercises, and then you progress some. Farther away from the season, you're more general with your exercises. They're less sports specific. So barbell bench press, cool. As you get closer to season though, maybe you go to incline. Then as you get closer to that, maybe you go to overhead. And then as you get closer to that, maybe you go from dumb barbells to dumbbells because you're more safe. Okay, great. And then as you go from that, maybe you progress to also like uh, do an overhead press with a dumbbell, but one of your feet is elevated on a bench or like some other things going on there. And you just get more and more specific. But the key point there is variation is not synonymous with randomization. So we're not just making stuff up and doing different things just to change things up. Like we are variation means you're changing with intention. So we have some sort of thing we're trying to get to, right? So we want to get this adaptation. We want to get this movement pattern strengthened. We want this biomotor ability, but we have intention there with our progression strategy. Okay. We hit summertime and I did not realize how crazy June and July is for these high school kids going through it with my son. Every single weekend in June is taken up at this high school. They'll do a summer camp here at Gonzago. They'll play three games a day for five straight days. Then you hit July, and not only do you have basketball every weekend, but one weekend we're in Chicago, the next week in Cincinnati, the next week in Vegas. So we have two months where it's just basketball. How do you approach the training piece in the weight room during those two months? Is it just, hey, survive? get in the gym, get your shots up, feel good. And then the rest of the time, recovery modalities. Or if you have a few days at home, do you sneak in a lift? I wouldn't even worry about it. I wouldn't worry about a lift at that point. Like if you got a couple days at home, I'd let them go to the pool with their friends, like that kind of stuff. Try to get them to recover. If you're playing that much hoop, like you're getting plyometrics, you're getting speed and power work because you're playing and you're running and jumping at full speed. I call it like a lift here and there. And so that's not going to do much of anything. So, yeah, I would probably just let them be kids at that point. I love that. And then August hits and you have nothing, no basketball, no school. And so that was my next question was, how much do you let him be a kid? And you spend time at the lake, go play other sports. Last summer, we had a ton of fun. I love that you're in the MMA world. We did a bunch of boxing, not just him, but my little fifth grade son. We went to the gym together and uh, it was so much fun. What's your thought process on training in August right before school starts? I mean, it's a great time to be able to get stronger, but it's also a great time just to be able to live life. I would ask almost nothing of them in August for all those reasons, especially if you're talking about basketball. You guys start up probably with school in November. Yeah, we start school ball in November. So you take August off. You still got plenty of time like to get them rolling. If they came off of two months where they probably played – 50 basketball games at minimum, like maybe, maybe significantly more than that. I, I would let them chill. And if they want to go get a lift and great, cool. Like kind of support them, you guys, but more of a, you know, quote unquote cross training at that point would be great because at 16, you were really still trying to develop mostly motor control. 
you're trying to develop jumping technique. Are your feet going in the right spot? Are you, do you have control? Is your right toe connected to your left finger? Right? Like, are your shoulder doing the same thing it's supposed to be doing? And you're just trying to move better. And so the more variation, um, so this is actually the point I was making. In this particular case, the more variation you're doing, the more benefit you're getting because you're trying to get global and you're trying to get well-rounded adaptations. You're not trying to get hyper-isolated at one thing. Like, um, if you're trying to get better at your basketball shot, shoot your basketball shot. Don't use different weighted balls. Don't use different things. Like, you use the same thing because you want to be hyper-specific at that free throw. Like, no variation there. Great. But when you want to learn a bunch of different skills, specificity is a problem. And the more variation, the more motor control happens, the more motor learning happens. And so getting them exposed and keeping their brain learning as many different things possible will keep the brain healthier, which will mean you'll be easier to then acquire the basketball skills later. That, so that same specificity of free throw shooting will be enhanced if before that you had a whole bunch of variation in neural control, if that all made sense. So getting them doing a bunch of different things like they're out fishing, they're swimming, they're boxing, like they're riding their bike, like all that stuff is great. It'll make their skill acquisition faster when they get into the season. What's your thoughts on preseason conditioning for the high school athletes? Most of the time they'll have an after-school weight class and then they'll do some form of conditioning. They'll run bleachers or run suicides. Yeah. But for the athletes that's already in good shape, an athlete like my son that needs to get stronger, would you even suggest doing any form of conditioning outside of the game of basketball in the fall? Not really. Uh, you could do a little bit in like October or something. Start getting ramped up a little bit where you're like, okay, we know season's starting in November. That way you don't walk in just really getting smashed the first two, two weeks of practice. But if that particular case, if you go back to the defenders, so I would ask this, okay, would you accept a 30% increase in strength if it means your conditioning went down 15? Then you know your answer. Is that net going to make you a better basketball player in this in this made up scenario? It sounds like yeah, clearly he needs to come off the court thirty seconds earlier. Then like, but geez, look at how much more benefit we get. Then that's a no brainer. So that answer is different for every kid, no doubt. But in this case, I would say yeah, like don't worry about it too much. If you can use those extra four weeks and get a little bit stronger, you're probably going to be further ahead. And we finish up. We're actually in season now. They're playing games every Tuesday, Friday. They'll have a two-hour practices on the days they don't have games. What should be their thought process as far as strength training goes, knowing that they're 16 and they still have a lot of years to get stronger, knowing that it's not just one event, it's not just the UFC fight that they're training for. They have a four-month season ahead. What's your thought process on them getting in the gym on a weekly basis? In season. In season. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Two to three days a week. Now. Typically in high school, kids don't lift on game day, but some do. And if you do, you want it to probably be something very low volume, um, non-fatiguing, maybe some power, some speed, maybe get some activation going on, and then you, you sort of shut it down. That's a pretty common thing. People tend to feel pretty good at that. It doesn't have to be light. You can actually do like kind of heavy just to get really primed and going, but you know, just a few repetitions, a few sets, a few exercises and and you know, kind of get out of there. So that's great. That'd be one of your lists if you want to do that. If you want to do that, then again, day before or day of game, depending on what you're doing, that's fine. Um, kind of the day after. So what high school basketball is typically Tuesday, Friday. Yeah. I had to go back there. 
All right, great. So Wednesday is kind of a little bit of like a, um, we, we just played a game the night before. We're going to come back in. It's a little bit of restoration, but you can train because you're going to have Wednesday off and Thursday, right, in terms of, of lifting. So um, either one of those days would be fine. Typically with our athletes, we always do a lift post game. So whether this is our major league baseball pitchers, like we generally like, like to lift like the next day, um, get that in there, get fresh, get flowing, get kind of blood pumping. Um, you're doing this is like, you think of this as like a, it's kind of a restoration day. You're working, but it's like a 70% day, but you're not like, you're not getting after it, but you're not like just coming in and foam rolling and stretching and going home either. Like we're going to lift, right? So if we did that on Wednesday, Thursday could be uh, like a true, Hey, we're going to, we're going to train here. Um, and then Friday is our game. So you can be on or off that day. You're not lifting on Saturday or Sunday, most likely most kids, right? Cause there's no school out there. And then you're back to Monday being like a kind of an activation day. So that gives you plenty of days. So Monday, you're getting activated. You're getting strong. You're getting fast. You're going in and playing Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday is kind of like your work through that middle of the week stuff, lower volume. Cause we know I got a game coming up here again. And then either again, Thursday or Friday is kind of like that activation day. And there it gives you somewhere between two to three days per week. But I think it'd be a good idea. I love it. Thank you so much for all of this big picture wisdom. I think with social media, it's the gift and the curse. There are so many cool exercises, thought processes on how to do something really specific, but we get lost in the weeds. And so to have you kind of give us a big picture of it uh, definitely helps. Any any last words of wisdom on program design that I didn't ask you about? Actually, just relative to that last point, what I'd say is the basics work very well. You can get really carried away with, with some of the high fancy stuff and that's okay. Like I'm not against any of it, but at, at this age range, you're talking about this high school kind of range, the very basics work and never forget the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to make sure that these kids are not broken when they're 25. Right. So like they're, they're still high school kids. Some of them are going to go play Gonzaga. Hopefully the better ones go play at the university of Washington. Ouch. Ouch. Yeah. Hey, no offense. Um, but the reality is none of them. You don't want any of them broke there. So we want to push them. We want to work hard. We want to do all those things. But the real goal is you want to make sure these kids learn to move their body better. And, uh, you know, there's always some risks that happen with sports. That's okay. That's part of it, right? Like, I got no issue with that. If my kids get hurt, yeah, that happens, right? Um, but But you want to make sure we're not forgetting. We're trying to make them better moving humans so that they can be physically active the next 80 years of their life after high school. Well, thank you so much, not just for this interview, but everything that you've done for our field. I got your book here. Oh, nice. Your, your YouTube channel is pod. You have a new podcast coming out. I'd love for you uh, to just share a little bit about what you have going on and where our listeners can find you. Yeah, absolutely. So that podcast is called Perform with Dr. Andy Galpin, and that'll be coming out uh, in the spring here pretty soon. That's going to be really cool. It's, uh, it's, it's a little bit short seasons, and the goal of that podcast is high performance. And so we're really talking about everything that goes into making high performing individuals and whether that is an athlete, that's great, but all of us want to perform at our best, right? So how do we look, feel, and perform however you define look, however you define feel, and however you define perform? Um, what are the tools and tactics and, and what's the science behind achieving all those things? So it's been really fun that we're almost done recording and that'll be out um, somewhat soon. And then if you can't wait that long, 
you know, you mentioned my YouTube channel and my social media, Instagram and Twitter. It's um, it's science communication, it's science human performance. That's pretty much all I do. So that those places are there. Um, the YouTube is free and always will be. And um, yeah, just try to put as much stuff out there as we can to help as many people as possible. Well, you're doing a great job of it. Yeah, thank you again. Even though you have the UW hat in the background, it was a pleasure finally getting to meet you. I mean, I just seriously thank you so much. Now that's a wrap on episode 121. And if you're enjoying the show, I'd love to hear about it. Hit me up on Instagram at Hoop Commitment to let me know what your favorite episodes are and share if you have any ideas for new guests. I'd also love to hear about any commitments that have been impactful to your life. My commitment this year of studying Stevie Wonder and piano has turned from 15 minutes into more like one hour a day of playing. I've got a long way to go, but I've already learned two of my favorite Stevie songs, which are I Never Dreamed You'd Leave in Summer and Overjoyed. And I'm about halfway through learning Ribbon in the Sky. Man, life is so much more fun when I'm passionate about learning a new skill. And so, to all of you who are committed, we'll earn your X.